You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Hi, this is Deep Tran, senior editor at American Theater Magazine. I'm Jose Solis, freelance theater critic, and we're your token theater friends—people who love theater so much that we went into the woods for this episode. Literally, we saw theater in nature, and the biggest souvenir I got were the six bug bites on my legs. And so, this is what happens when you take human technology and people and put them. Into the wilderness. Crickets, crickets, crickets. Chirp, 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 chirp. <laughs> How are you doing this week, Jose? It's so hot. I'm like dying every day. I'm melting. It's so humid outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, when we saw Into the Woods at the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival, which is one of the things we'll talk about today, it was actually thunderstorming, and so it it felt it felt nice. It was magical. It wasn't even nice. It wasn't bad. It wasn't good or nice. It was fucking magical. <laughs> nice is different than good, though. Remember that. Totally. Um, well, be- before we get to that, what two shows are we talking about today? We are going to be discussing Seawall Alive, currently running on Broadway, and also Bat Out of Hell, currently running at City Center. And our guest for today is actor Brittany Simpson, who is currently playing the the baker's wife in Into the Woods at Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival. But more about her later. First, let's talk about men being sad. Must we? The men are fathers, and they have fathers who they have complicated feelings about. And in Seawall, a life currently playing on Broadway, they are sad. Do you want to talk about it, Jose? I mean, I guess. Do I really want to talk about it, though? Um, Seawall, Alive is a transfer that went from the public theater, where it ran in the spring. It feels like it was so long ago. Mm-hmm. It ran in the spring, and it moved to the Hudson Theater, which should be renamed the Jake Gyllenhaal Theater, I think. Yeah. I think this is the second show I've seen Jake Gyllenhaal do at the Hudson. Yeah, he's like his name should be there. Anyway, the play is an evening comprised of two monologues, Seawall by Simon Stevens and Alive by Nick Payne, in which Tom Sturridge and Jake Gyllenhaal play men who are very, very, very sad, and they have very sad stories to tell about not only their fathers, but also about their daughters, because they're both dads so it's dad world and i don't know there's much to say about uh each of the the plays they are very different because they're by very different writers and one of the things that keeps really bothering me about this production because this is the second time that i've seen it and so have you right we lived, yeah, yeah. We lived through this twice. Yes, and I'm very ambivalent about having done that. Yeah, and the, yeah, the thing about this production that is really tricky for me is that the plays don't fit together. Like they feel like, it kind of feels like a forced evening at the theater where they were like, we have these two actors, one who is uh, a huge movie star. 
and the other one who is really, British. Yeah, British, <laughs> but also like a really, really fantastic stage and screen actor who's, I don't like using this word often because I think it's a lot of BS, but he's very underrated. And I'm obviously talking about Tom Sturridge, who, did you see him in Orphans? Mm-mm. When he took over, uh, who was it that he took over uh, from Shia when he was fired? And he took on the part in Orphans like five or six years is, ago. Is Orphans a movie? It's a play on Broadway. Oh, okay. Where he I was didn't like see. Okay. starring opposite Alec Baldwin. Oh. And remember, like, Alec Baldwin and Shia LaBeouf had this like huge like fight. Oh, yeah. And then he was fired. And then Tom Sturridge came and took over and like a few weeks before opening. And he ended up with a Tony nomination. Oh, good for him. Because he's really oh, he's good. Yeah. He's really, really fantastic. And I was, uh, I have to say that when I saw it at the public, I kind of really liked Jake Gyllenhaal's performance more than I expected to. But seeing it on Broadway, I was like, nope. Tom Sturridge still owns this evening for me. Yeah. Um, I describe it as a really well-made graduate showcase where, you know, if if you've ever graduated from acting school, you know at the end of the year uh, they put on a big event where all the actor, every actor gets their own monologue or moment so that they can show off how talented they are and so someone will hire them. I got the, that feeling from this because not only like the only thing that connects these two plays together is, is some amorphous theme about fatherhood and fathers which is fine but otherwise they're two completely different acting styles they're two completely different writing styles and tonally both and they're two different completely different tones and so and, and so i don't understand the rationale of why they put this evening together the way they did other than these are two dudes who want to do theater together and we're going to put them on stage but and not at the same time we can make a lot bucks. of money yeah it feels a little bit craven yeah but the thing about the when the second time when i was uh watching it on broadway the thing that i really thought maybe this is why the play is supposed to work was because at the end i came out really uh got excited is not the right word that i want to use here because it wasn't excitement but it was like huh about the fact that the contrasting styles are, for me, what the production on Broadway was about. Because we have Tom Sturridge, who's all heart. And, you know, he he's moving in ways that are completely refreshing. Like, uh, he does a lot with his body. Mm-hmm. He does a lot with his voice. And just, like, when his voice breaks a little bit, it just, like, shatters you. And then we have this, like, very naturalistic... A lovely performance next to Jake Gyllenhaal, who's such a ham. Yeah, and he hammed it more on Broadway. Do you think he hammed it more on Broadway? Totally. Like that's what yeah. I was saying earlier. Like I really liked him off Broadway, and I was surprised because he's not one of my favorites. Like I have oh, no, a really same. hard time identifying. Like what is it that people see in him? And on Broadway, he was just playing. Like I was thinking, does he think his Zidler and He's doing Moulin Rouge because he was like all over the place. <laughs> Hugh and was Jackman. Too much. Yeah. yeah. He wanted yeah. to be Hugh Jackman. It was too much. He even has like the Hugh Jackman long hair now. Mm-hmm. 
I th- my issue, my biggest issue was that off Broadway, Jake Gyllenhaal wore a cardigan, and so I naturally sympathize with men who wear cardigans. But on on Broadway, he looked he was doing you know the button up hot dad look, which I'm not into because it's a douchey look. And the character that he's playing is not that. He's a nerd. He's like such a dork. Yeah, he's supposed to be a nerd, but he didn't come off as a nerd on Broadway. Not at all. No, he just came off as more what I imagine Jake Gyllenhaal is actually like, which is annoying. That that too, but also, you know, like refined and kind of selfish and like his indecisiveness, which off Broadway was really charming because he was a nerd was not charming because he he was trying to be he was trying to be like Clark Superman instead of Clark Kent. Mm-hmm. It's like that neurosis that made him so adorable off mm-hmm. Broadway just turns into this like sociopath behavior almost on yeah. Broadway. He's doing like too much because there's this like key moment that I was wondering how they would do in the play on Broadway, which was, you know, that famous thing, or is it infamous? I don't know. That famous thing off Broadway where at some point during his monologue, Jake Gyllenhaal goes into the audience and he, mm-hmm. like, makes his way through, uh, you know, a row of seats, right? And he just, like, mm-hmm. bumps into everyone and has everyone move. And then the way they do it on Broadway felt like he was, again, like, it was like the Jake Gyllenhaal show and he kept, like, ad-libbing things. Did he do that at your performance? Yeah, a little bit. Like, when he ran across... It's like the front row or something. It's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, like, he was walking across, and he kept saying things like, turn off your phone, and, like, keep sleeping, sir. And I was like, come on, Jake Gyllenhaal, just, like, relax. Yeah, well, it, it, it took... I think... Like, it took away from, like, the severity of what it was that he was talking about, which, you know, humor can can sometimes highlight sadness, but this was not one of those times. And what I really... Like, the first time around, the first time I saw it, I didn't appreciate Tom Sturridge as much because I don't think I appreciated what it was that he was doing, which was most of his monologue, which I think is actually harder than Jake's monologue. Most of his monologue hinges on things he can't say mm-hmm. to the audience. And so the first time I saw it, I was like, wait, did he, did he forget a line or is this intentional? And then the second time I saw it, I realized, oh, this is the moment again. Okay, it really is intentional and this is just a really awkward man in pain who doesn't know how to express his pain and he can't say anything because how what can you say when something like that happens to him to his character which we won't spoil here and so i really appreciate what tom was able to do which was just like fill the silence with meaning Mm -hmm. and during that silence i have to say that was the first time that i noticed how how splendid daniel kluger's sound design is because uh tom sturridge's monologue takes place by the sea and there are moments when the uh sound mimics what it's like to be underwater yes and what better way for this character who's suffering so much to represent the pain than making him feel like he's underwater he's always floating and there was a little moment even when tom sturridge mimics you know swimming more like not swimming like Mm -hmm. floating Mm-hmm. underwater mm-hmm. and just like being contained which made me think about you know like a baby almost like floating away and trying to forget about his pain mm-hmm. or not even knowing that pain exists and it was just so moving so if producers are willing to sell half tickets 
so people can go see Tom's Storage. Yeah, for sixty dollars. Yeah, go to Tom's Storage because there's internet immersion, so you can flee before Jake hams it up. Yeah, and I I actually thought that it was that the sound design was a little bit too obtrusive because I remember off Broadway it was just. The words and the actors and very minimal lighting set anything. And on Broadway, you have you know the very overt sound design. You have like giant lighting, spotlights on the stage. That Tom Sturridge turns on himself. You have projections, and I feel like this was one of those times where they just really wanted to spiffy it up for. Oh my god! Well, the lighting design did not change that much from the public. But oh my god, those projections were not、oh. off Broadway, right? They were not off Broadway. They、right? were not off Broadway. Oh my god! Oh god, that was heinous. <laughs> It, 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 it's like, have you ever wanted to be knocked over the head with the th- the big important theme of this play? Well, you that will happen to you at this production if you want. Well, you're one of those people who really just likes things spelled out for you. Have fun. And it's nothing against the projection designer.、Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, if that's what he was asked to do. Or she was asked to do. I, I can find his name, but if that was the person was asked to do, oh look, Hall. So he, if that's what Mr. Halls was asked to do, then I mean, go Mr. Halls, right? But it added nothing, and it just made oh god, the the final projection. Oh, oh god, it was just like cringeworthy. <laughs> It was unnecessary. It was unnecessary. You know, less is more. Be like Coco Chanel. Like like Coco Chanel used to say, whenever you before you leave the house, take off the last thing you put on because it's too much. What if it's my pants? <laughs> <laughs> pants are overrated, Jose. And also be like Coco Chanel, but do not collaborate with Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Don't 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 do don't do that. Listen to her fashion and style advice, but not to the Nazis. Not not、part. to the Nazis. Anyway,、um, if you're interested, Seawall Alive is playing on Broadway until until Jake Gyllenhaal gets tired of 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 pretending to be a dad. <laughs> it's one. Of, it's also one of those weird things when, like, because it's Jake Gyllenhaal, like you know he's not a dad in real life, and he's and the thing about monologue is you really need to believe the actor is the character, and when it's a Big celebrity, that leap is harder for me. Yeah, like, like what went wrong, Jake? You were so good at Broadway. Yeah, what happened? Someone tell me what happened. Anyway, or it was a cardigan. My theory was a cardigan and the nerd glasses, which he lost both on Broadway. Which, Jake, why do you have to be hot? You you don't need to look hot all the time. Anyway,、uh, Seawall Alive is playing until September twenty ninth, and tickets are fifty nine to three hundred and forty dollars. So, if you want Jake Gyllenhaal to touch you, like what happened to one of the people, one of our interns who we took to this play, then、uh, have go forth. The second show we are talking about today is. A musical, Jose's favorite genre of performance, which is why I'm so excited to talk to you about this. It is Bat Out of Hell, currently playing at New York City Center, and it it, it features the music. It is a jukebox musical featuring the music of Jim Steinman, who wrote the book, music, and lyrics. And one of those times where he really should have let someone else write something. Uh, so basically, if you don't know Jim Steinman, he wrote most of Meatloaf's、uh, catalog. So you know, I will do anything. I'll do anything for love. It's all coming back to me now. Bad out of hell. All you know, making love out of nothing at all. You know, all of those '80s rock hair rock 
bam, stuff. And the musical is set in 2030, and it is a post-apocalyptic situation where some kind of event happened that made a bunch of kids not age, and they and they they just stay 18 forever. And the head kid, who's basically a Peter Pan figure, falls in love with a Wendy, who's a daughter of like a rich tycoon who never lets her go outside. I think. And they spend the they spend the musical trying to be together and singing really loudly. And Lena Hall is in this, and she and she wears a really terrible wig, but she makes it work because her rendition of "Paradise by a Dashboard Light" was so epic. I would have been happy if the whole thing ended at that point. That's so early. I know, but this thing was two and a half hours. It, Two and hours they, and 45 minutes. But you know why it was that long? It was because, it's not story. It was because they sang the full length of every song, which is usually, which, you know, Jim Simon songs are usually like six to 10 minutes uncut. And so they sang the entire 10 minute version of Paradise by a Dashboard Light. It was too much. It was, it was, too much and not very good for most of it, but the singing it's kind of like Les Mis. After a while, the singing just kind of it's like, it's like a wave. You just become like, you just get eaten by all the singing and you just kind of forget what time it is. Hmm. And why you're here. Well, it is too much, but for me, that's precisely what the <laughs> musical, why the musical worked so well. I had such a blast. Mm-hmm. Like, I loved every second of this show because it was so bonkers it was like it was so bonkers this musical epitomizes what camp is like this musical should have ran at the Met instead of the actual camp exhibit because it is so freaking campy it's like big hair and like Peter Pan and like goth costumes and then like 60s like hairspray kind of styles and there's like movie cameras and the set is so insane. That set was very fantastic. Yeah and there's motorcycles and there's like incredible dancing and there's like people taking off their clothes and there's so much sex and then these songs which are already larger than life and when they're put center stage like that and being sung by like vampire like teenagers and like depressed you know uh wendy type characters it was just incredible like i i was not expecting to even enjoy the musical like at all and i came out just like exhilarated it was just so fantastic i have no idea how i feel about this musical because I think it's one of those things where you just need to, I just need to turn off my head after a while. I, I think I needed to be a little bit drunk for this. And yes. I was too, I was too sober. And so the entire time I was like, why is this an artistic choice? I do not understand the artistic choice of having a bed, like a bedroom being video, videotaped and then a recreation of the bedroom on stage. Like I don't, it's like, why are there two bedrooms? I don't understand. Stuff I mean, like that. Yeah, but in the world of the musical, like, even the craziest choices made sense, if that makes sense. Because it felt to me like, again, I'm sorry, Moulin Rouge, that I had to, like, you know, <laughs> it so much. use you so often. But this is what Moulin Rouge should have felt like. It should have felt like 
it was bonkers. Like mm-hmm. someone's brain exploded and like glitter and like jukebox musicals. Uh, sorry, jukebox songs came out. And then, like, everyone's just, like, drunk and dancing and, like, horny and, like, happy and sad at the same time. That's what I wanted from, you know, that's what I want from musicals. I want, like, larger than life, like, uncontainable, almost, emotions and scenes. Because, you know, you said that nothing made sense. But even if nothing makes sense, I, I have never seen musical numbers such that felt so alive. Never? I mean, not in a very long time. They felt like insane. They felt like someone, they felt like people in the audience just got up and went on stage and started dancing. No disrespect to the performers who were all really wonderful. But it felt, it had that like energy of like a rock concert. Yeah, except none of us were standing. So that probably didn't help. Oh, the, the, the old people did not stand up? Not after, not until after the show for okay. Curtain Call, but no one was standing. Which is a whole thing, which is another whole thing about rock on, in the theater. It's just, theater's not the be- the, a good place for it. You need to stand. Yeah, but anyway, now I do agree with you. Like the thing that saved it for me, like when none of it made sense, the thing that really saved it for me was the fact that they, everyone was committed and they were sincere. Like I believe whatever batshit thing that they were believing no pun intended like there's this moment where um andrew pollock who who plays the main character who gets most of the songs uh you know he's he's like tall skinny curly blonde hair very much a peter pan figure and he's singing i think he's singing bad out of hell the closer for act one and then he gets shot from you don't hear gunshots blood just suddenly appears on his very bare freakishly bare chest with no hair on it but he's still singing at the top of his lungs and then the and then the curtain falls and i'm just like that was so dumb and i'm kind of into it yeah I mean, Jim Steinman spent almost four decades trying to bring this musical to the stage. What really moved me out of it was how so many of the things and the worries that he saw almost 40 years ago are still relevant today. Cause, I you mean, saw themes? Yeah. What did you see? What, what were the themes? Tell me what were the themes. I mean, there's like the whole thing about like Manhattan becoming like a post-apocalyptic like hellscape, which is not that crazy considering that we're on our way there like did you see that thing recently where someone said by that by 2050 uh battery park and most of like southern manhattan would be underwater yes and i mean that's bad out of hell and the Mm -hmm. whole thing where like really rich people fear millennials (laughs) which are kind of like the vampire kids in this one the lost boys uh that felt so relevant also and there are things that are also timeless like lena hall's Sloan was mm-hmm. such a great mother slash wife, but not until the end, like, you know, a woman in her own right character that I was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, yeah, this captures perfectly what most uh, female characters have to endure. And her performance was just astonishing. Now, I wonder, I wonder if like it was that developed, that character was as developed in the previous German version of this, or if it was like Lena Hall, because she brought so much 
into it like the character is a typical mom but you know she used to be a rocker too and she wants to be young again but not in like a i want to be beautiful way but in a free way and you know lena hall always gives like a slightly manic energy to any character that she plays and so she just brought like an edge to i to what would have otherwise been a very vanilla character but she also made it like subdued and her relationship Mm -hmm. with uh and sexy oh so sexy her relationship with raven played by Christina Bennington, that's her daughter, kind of reminded me of Tracy and Edna Termlin in Hairspray, where it's this like, lovely like mother-daughter dynamic where they don't really get each other, mm-hmm. but they sort of do at the end. I don't know. I had such a blast with this musical. Yeah. I just wished it was shorter and someone else had written the book so things would be clearer. I mean, who needs to be clear when you have like drinks and LSD and all the drugs on Broadway these days. Okay, fine. If you're going to go see Bat Out of Hell, I recommend to be either drunk or stoned or just on something. You will enjoy it so much more. I was very sober. All I had had all I had before were like Swedish fish. Yeah, I was incredibly sober. Incredibly I, sober. Yeah, I was working like right before like like right as the curtain was was opening. Oh no. Yeah. So you're saying if you'd been drunk, you would have joined the big moment when everyone goes with the, uh, we're doing this right now. The, um, baby, (laughs) baby, 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 when you touch me like this. I don't even know. And it's all coming back to me now. Now. And then, like, when Lita does that note, and it goes Mm -hmm. on forever, like that, baby, 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 when you... Wow. Yeah. Shivers. Okay. Yeah. And she didn't need to be in that song, but I'm glad she was. Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She should be in every song. Exactly. We love you, Lena Hall. And if you love Lena Hall, too, we did an interview with her last year. So check that one out. Um, Bat Out of Hell is currently playing at New York City Center from until September 8th. And tickets are 45 to 225. And there are rush seats at the box, do- box office for $30. And they are called meat seats. M E A T. So. This production knows what it is, maybe, and I admire that. Maybe Jake Gyllenhaal's character from Alive should join Bandit of Hell. <laughs> or maybe Jake Gyllenhaal should have played the dad opposite Lena Hall, even though the actor who played the dad was really great, too. It's so good. Yeah, and when he becomes hot dad at the end, like, I, be- I believe it. I- by the end, I was there. It just <laughs> took a little while. <laughs> it's like when someone pulls up, on you, pulls up in front of you in a motorcycle, and you're like, should I get on the motorcycle? Get on the motorcycle. Wear a helmet. (laughs) Anyway, um, do you want to intro Brittany Simpson? Yes. At the Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival, before going to Into the Woods, we actually sat down with the baker's wife, played by Brittany Simpson, who's this wonderful actor who you might not necessarily know if you mostly see theater in New York, but she's done theater all over Oregon Shakespeare Festival. This is her second season at Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival. She also originated a part of Mopsa in Head Over Heels at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. So we talked to her about being what we are pretty confident might be one of the only times uh, women of color has played the baker's wife. So let's 
take a listen at what Brittany had to say. We are at the beautiful Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival with Brittany Simpson from Into the Woods. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank like, you. How do you get any any work done here with all that beauty everywhere? I know. You know what? Literally the first time I came here, which was last year, last year was my first season, it took my breath away. I was like, oh, I had no idea a place like this existed. But luckily we're doing Into the Woods, the easiest place to be in this kind of environment. <laughs> So when was the first time you <laughs> saw Into the Woods? The first time I saw Into the Woods um, was my first year at the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts, PCPA. It's where mm-hmm. I went to school at. It's a two-year program. And our class above us had did it. And I watched it, and I, lo- I fell in love immediately. Um Particularly with the witch, I, uh, her music has always like spoke to me immediately. Mm-hmm. But um, I just thought it was so clever and so beautiful. I'm such a firm believer in you can only go as high as you fall. So like the fact that they touch all those low notes, especially in the second act, I was like, this is there's there's so much more to unpack here. And then I understudied um, two years later in 2014 um, at uh, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, understudied their production. Um, I understudied The Baker's Wife mm-hmm. and the woman who played the stepmom slash the cow slash granny slash giant. <laughs> it is a great, is a great, yeah, multiple track. Like many people compare uh, Stephen Sondheim to Shakespeare, mm. and like Shakespeare in many ways, I feel that Sondheim's work has been taking a little too long to become fully diverse. Totally, it's until recently that we've started to see, you know, women playing traditionally male parts mm-hmm. and people of color playing characters that have. It, they doesn't say it. They're white yeah. in the book, but that's how people have interpreted them. Right, 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 right. right. And that was their about, imagination. Yeah, and thinking yeah. about the Baker's wife. I mean, it's been like Joanna Gleason and Amy Adams and Emily Blunt. And have you seen? You know, I have never seen a woman of color play. Uh, I have not seen a woman of color play the Baker's wife, and I would. I, so I, I find it special, and I'm finding different colors that I didn't know before, particularly with this production, you know. I mean, I, I just think there's such opportunity um, to, well, it, it to color it, it, them differently, and that's, it's, I could find a more articulate way to say that, but it's like you see different shades of society and the world when you see different people. Beyond woods, beyond witches and slippers and hoods, just the two of us beyond lives, safe at home with our beautiful prize. Just a few of us, it takes trust, it takes just a bit more and we're done. We want four, we add nine, we've got three. We want what, what kind of resonances does like a diverse casting and and for you what, what 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 kind of things have you found in doing the role that you haven't seen before? Oh, that's a good question. In this production, both the prince and the baker, uh, Cinderella's prince, mm-hmm. um, who I, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's some relations there with the baker's wife. Um, we can spoil it because it's. It, it's pretty well known. Yeah, everyone knows. Everyone knows. Yeah, 
I'm yeah, really not yeah. gonna like hear anything. There's yeah. an infatuation that she yeah. has um, that yeah. sparks immediately, yeah. and um, I think as a black woman, um, I know it, like culturally there has been a specific relationship with black women and white men. It used to be where they were where. Back in the day, day in American history, the white men often slept with black women and had them, um, and and it was kind of like an undercut. There was a shame attached to it for mm-hmm. I think uh, white men to admit their attraction to black women, and I mean of course uh, society's changing and all that, but you know back in the day, just like a hundred years ago, it was illegal <laughs> to get married um, for you know interracial couples to happen. Um, so I think there's something interesting about the prince being white and, um, her infatuation with him and his status and, and, you know, um, seeing him chase after another white woman and thinking I can never be that. Mm -hmm. And then him finding her in the woods and like exercising his attraction and his authority over her. You know, I think mm-hmm. that's a story that's been told before, um, and it has a different potency. Um, and then, you know, for her husband also to be white, it seems like there, for me, there's been a different layer of like, what if she has been trying to chase the dream of the prince the whole time and get her like, uh, feel important in society somehow. Um, and then she gets into this relationship. I mean, it's a work relationship mostly, you know, they're, they are working partners. Um, but there's that fantasy that she's always had of like him being a prince Mm -hmm. and him being someone who can add value to her, um, or make her feel loved or make her feel important Mm -hmm. in this world that, I've kind of tapped into personally. It's not something that everybody knows about, but you know, I think it, it's a story that I would see if I saw a black woman play opposite of two white men, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then she finally has an orgasm and a giant kills her. Hello. It's like, like, uh, we must punish you. Yeah, yeah. You're going to be, yeah, yeah, exactly. She finally has an orgasm. That's really what it is. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's it. You nailed it. <laughs> that's why in many ways, like, I love the junior version of Prince of the Woods. Oh, yeah. That's going to happen to her. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Everyone yeah, gets yeah. a happy ending Everyone in that Everyone gets version. a happy ending. Oh, that's so funny. That is so funny. Um, Into the Woods is the first musical that Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival has ever done. And last year you were in Taming of the Shrew, uh-huh. which was not mic'd, and Into the Woods is. And can you talk a little bit about what just like having microphones, how does that change the way you approach the work and the process? I was always told that the microphone enhances the energy that you already have. Mm-hmm. So like, uh, and it's really a, a trap for actors to fall into, to like, you know, uh, go into an energy that's like this, that's this personal because we have a microphone. But when you're out there, I try and speak as if I didn't have a microphone and they can adjust. But like, so I, I think the microphones, I'm grateful for them, but I'm also, I don't use them as an opportunity to like fall back in energy because you can really tell when someone's microphoned and they're just like, 
phoning yeah. it in. Yeah, 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 yeah. Phoning it in, exactly. They're not giving as much because they know they're mic'd. It's like, mm-hmm. well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You still need the same energy like you're projecting to an audience outside, competing with the weather, competing with the rain, competing with the wind, competing with, like, the void that is this whole outdoor. If you speak up, up, upstage of the tent, it, your sound just, like, leaves. Mm. Like, getting to do this show in the woods is... I think a rarity. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's an energy that the trees give and that the wind gives and that, the, the water gives our opening night. It, there was like a lightning storm before it started raining. And like, oh. you know, the witch is out there singing the last midnight and like bolts of lightning lighting up the sky behind her. You know, it's like something that you can't write. Mm-hmm. It's like when God no. chooses to play with you, you know, yeah. on stage, you can't, you can't really beat it. We are safe out of sight in yourself, but where everything's wrong. But where everything's right, and you know that you'll never be long. And whichever you pick, do it quick, because you're starting to stick to the steps of the palace. I want to talk to you about, like, what made you want to do this as a profession. What was your aspiration starting out as an actor? And how did you do it? I think it's all, it always called to me. So there was like little seeds planted and I never knew why. It feels more like a, um, a, a purpose calling, you know? Um, some things that you just like can't explain why you are where you are. Like when I was, I didn't beg my mom to take classes, you know? I was never like an overtly ambitious child. And I, I wish I was, I wish I was like, mom, put me in dance classes. Cause that would really benefit me right now. Um, you're an actor who moves. I'm an actor who moves. I can, I can give it to you now, but ask me to do a fuete and I will break a leg. Um, so, uh, I, I, I remember when I was nine, we were supposed to write a report about, um, us about where we want to travel to and about what we want to do when we grow up. And I wrote, um, artist, singer, actor, dancer. And I didn't know why. And I never touched it. And then when I was, uh, 16, um, I had gotten, my mom took me off of the cheerleading team (laughs) and made me really sad, but it opened up me being able to, uh, join theater class. I joined theater class And we did this, um, Halloween show and, uh, I had no lines. I was painted all white and I had a long black wig on. Oh, yeah. Right. So it was, I think it was the year the grudge came out. Um, so, (laughs) so I had no lines. I just screamed. And afterwards my psychology slash Spanish teacher came up to me and told me, you know this is what you're supposed to be doing for the rest of your life, right? And I said, oh, okay. And it was just, it, something clicked in me. Something clicked in me. You know, sometimes your body and your spirit knows things before your mind puts it together. And there's things, too, that your mind will never put together, and it's mm-hmm. fine. You know, um, that's one of them. And so it was from then on, from high school, then I went to community college, um, and then I went to PCPA. And, but I, I knew that that was going to be my plan A. Mm-hmm. And so I think storytelling um, is a passion, but really the connection between the audience um, 
and the business, the profession of like evoking empathy is really a passion of mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I get taken here and there. I never kind of fully know where I'm going to land. But. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of that, you originated the role of Mopsa in one of my favorite musicals of oh, the decade. Oh, really? I love Head Over Heels. You love Head Over Heels. So much. And I will always oh. be angry at Broadway for not getting it. And I don't know why, it, like something, I don't know why people didn't connect to it more because it was, I think it was ahead of its time. That's what I think it was. Mm, that and, makes a lot of sense. That yeah. makes sense. I, I love Jeff Woody. Love Jeff Woody, um, who was, you know, the, the writer of the piece and at Saving Grace while, while um, doing the show in Oregon. I recognize in, in the Broadway production that, like, it introduced people to terminology such as like non-binary mm-hmm. or, you know what I mean? Like, and, and that was, it, it, it's helping it bridge the gap, but I think it could do even more like deepening work. And there was a, it, it you know, like producers and I, I don't know how, I don't know how any of it really works, but like they, um, there is a transition in transitioning from regional to Broadway, there's a lot of shit that happens. For the most part, it taught me more about myself and about um, how to move forward in the face of adversity, how to value yourself and make sure that you are that you share your value. I liked Mopsa in particular because she knew her value the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, where you had Pamela trying to figure it out. <laughs> you had uh, the king and queen like going through their you know, their adversity, you know, cause the King had a complex and, uh, but Mopsa knew who she was and just wanted to bring people on board, mm. you know? So that's, that's really what I loved about her. I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about like the development process of a piece like that. And, you mm-hmm. know, going to Broadway, people, people mm-hmm. leave, people come in. And so for you as an actor, like how mm-hmm. do you get past the, Oh, I didn't get picked for this, but right. I still have to work. Right. You know, I mean, it happens so much more often than you would think, mm-hmm. especially, um, at, I mean, I, a great society is going back on, uh, on Broadway. I know of a lot of things that originated at OSF yeah. that, you know, went to Broadway cause they're, they're you making know, they're a lot of stuff. Of great, yeah. yeah. They're making yeah. a lot of stuff. Um, um, and it gets, it gets messy. It gets gritty. You know, I think for that show, I wasn't up for it. And I think because of all the things that had transpired, I was okay with not being a part of that process. I was okay with it being for other people. Um, but it, it can get as crazy as what you would think. Um, I do. And, and it, cause it changes so much. I mean, even when starting at OSF two weeks before, um, Jeff hands us a new script and it was all in verse before that it was in prose <laughs> two weeks before we started rehearsal. That's not nice, <laughs> uh, but, but it was, he was inspired. Right. So like, it's, it's not nice, but it's like, that's the way it goes. And it's, yeah. and it's good, you know, um, it will, as we learn in this, like it might not be nice. It might not be good, but it's right. Mm-hmm. And for that, it was really right. Mm. You know, um, but there's so much that they want celebrities. They want, you know, people who they think are going to sell tickets. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yo, everyone, everyone was a newcomer at some point. I don't know why y'all don't trust the work. 
that's what it really shows to me. Yeah. Is when, when you need a celebrity, you don't trust the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the more and more we get about, uh, the more and more I, uh, money is the idol. And I guess it has to be, but like, it feels like equality can be sacrificed a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're one of the only actors, uh, I can think of that's been both in a production of the Wizard of Oz, but also of the Wiz. Wiz. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, I'm a huge, like, I'm going to have freaking Judy tattooed on my Come on, Judy! Yes, that's gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Having explored the same world Mm -hmm. through what are two very different lenses. Mm -hmm. The Wiz, I love how unapologetically black Mm -hmm. it is. And it celebrates African-American culture and black culture in this way that it's always like, yes. Yes, yes. you know, what keeps attracting you to Oz and how was it to be doing the same story in a way from a white and from a black lens? Oh, I I think the mic's going to pick up this wind. Oh, <laughs> it's the Wicked Witch of the West. It's the Wicked Witch. She's like, you're talking about me. Um, I remember uh, when I played in the Wizard of Oz, that was at PCPA, and I had went up to um, the artistic director and had a meeting with him and asked him, like, I just want to know that I got this role because... I was the best and not because this is a push for diversity um, that you're having. You know, I just had a complex about it because, you know, a lot lot of people would actually ask the question though. Yeah. To the artistic director. I tend to, I tend to do that kind of stuff. (laughs) Just like I was, you know what I mean? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and, and more so, I mean, that's, it might've been driven by ego or whatever, you know, I'm like, I just want to know that I, that I got it because I'm good and not because, um, we're, trying to be progressive right and which i i feel like is a it's a huge trend at the moment and i feel sometimes that it's genuine and sometimes that it's uh because it's lucrative you know Mm -hmm. um but at that time even just seven years ago it was it wasn't and he said you got it because you got it you know so i had to not apologize for being a black person amongst mostly white cast and mostly white audience then. Um, and I remember in the Wiz collectively the first time after the first preview, we were like, we had a meeting like as a, as a team, Robert Hara had directed that piece and we had a black director and, um, we all sat and talked about what it was like to, do this show in front of a whole bunch of white people. The culture of others is commonly perceived as stereotypes. Um, it's as stereotypical. Like, mm-hmm. this is a stereotypical thing that black people do, or this is a stereotypical, like, oh, yes, of course they would talk in this accent, of course they would say, sing it this yeah. way, or of course, you know what I mean? I feel like other cultures can identify. Um, but black culture in particular, um, because of our history, I feel like are the credit of culture is not really given. Mm -hmm. And so I, that for me was a journey of reaching the idea of like, this is us sharing our culture Mm -hmm. and not just our people, not just things that we do. This is, this is our culture. This was developed. This sound was developed by us. This, this, um, joy, this, this, 
banter, this, these uh, getting past, like apologizing for who we are, um, was awesome. Mm -hmm. And now like, you know, I have to fight to view things as not stereotypical, but as cultural. Mm -hmm. This is, this is a cultural aspect because believe it or not, like the wizard of Oz, the, the original is not just a neutral piece. It's also a cultural piece. Yeah. It's also cultural. That is their cult. Everyone has a culture. And to acknowledge that, like, white is also a color. You know what I mean? It's kind mm -hmm. of along those same lines. Like, yeah. this is me telling it from the perspective of this culture, and this is me telling it to, from the perspective of the other culture. Someone has to shield you from a world. Stay with me. So I feel like after having seen Into the Woods outside in a thunderstorm where the witch does last midnight as it's like like downpouring outside, I feel like I'm going to have a hard time watching other productions now. Yeah, I don't blame you. That was just like extraordinary. Careful that... Things you do. Thunder will listen. Yeah, Thunder yeah. will listen. Thunder will listen. <laughs> it's like Percy Jackson. Did you see the lightning thief when no. it played on Broadway? Was it good? Oh my god, it was so fantastic. I'm so excited that it's coming to Broadway. Oh uh, yes, and speaking of things are coming to Broadway. A couple of weeks ago, we were complaining about how there's no original musicals on Broadway this season. And you know what? Sometimes you shouldn't you shouldn't complain too early in the summer about about stuff like this because boom, suddenly there's four. All of them. Who are they? What are they? Well, besides yeah. having six, we're getting that musical about Lady Di. Mm -hmm, the Lady Di musical. Yeah, we're also getting a bunch of London imports. Not all of them are original musicals, but we're getting Caroline or Change, the very first revival on Broadway since the original productions were like almost 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. We are also getting an LSD musical. But like the thing that I was like thinking when Caroline or Change was announced, and then we also have Six, and then we also have The Inheritance, which is a play, is that all of a sudden New York feels like London. Wait, yeah, and all of those played last season on the West yeah, End. all of those were nominated for the Olivier. Though The Inheritance is written by an American playwright, though. Mm -hmm. Matthew Lopez. But I'm wondering, like, well, why, what do you think that is? is? Is it just because producers are looking for, like, done deals to bring to Broadway? Maybe, because, like, if you can just, like, get, like, a whole package with the show and, like, the marketing, people already know that the show exists even again, if it's a revival like Helen or Change, where they just like pick like the lead actor and the the you know the concept of the show in London, just bring it to Broadway, it's probably easier than trying to figure out like who who's new or what's new that we can give a chance to. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, well, at the same time, though, there's still going to be like still fifteen empty houses on Broadway. So you think there? So I feel like there's still time. Apparently, like most of them are full by now. 
Yeah, but they're full. But who knows if Percy Jackson, the Lightning Thief, is going to do well on Broadway? But that also has a limited run. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and I hope it does well because it was like so good. I really like the work that Theater Works is that what it's called? Yeah, Theater Works is doing with mm-hmm. Family Entertainment because they also did. And I'm going to say it again because people don't believe me, but Dogman the musical is so fantastic, and it's by the same company. And they're just like putting this edge to family entertainment that most of us adults, especially cynical adults, mm-hmm. in your case, deep. Yes. Yeah. Cynical don't adults expect, with no children. Yeah. They don't expect theater for uh, kids to have that edge. And Percy Jackson was fabulous. And just the, the amount of DIY kind of practical effects they do. Because mm-hmm. you like the Harry Potter effects. I do love the Harry yeah. Potter effects. So Percy's... Percy Jackson is kind of that, but even more like fun. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, and and it is well. Wait, and isn't the Diana musical an original American musical too? I think so, but I mean, what can be more British than Lady Die? <laughs> and I think the Tom new Tom Kit um, musical with Carmen Carmen Cusack is also original. The LSD musical. Yep. Yeah. So we have like an even, almost an even split. Between London and America? Yeah, almost. But I mean, but none of the new things that are, that originated in the States have been tested and like all the things, other than Percy, I guess, but all the things that are coming from London have had really successful runs in London and like have swept all the awards and like critics liked it and stuff. So maybe can it be that London's becoming the new New York? Maybe. Well, there is more funding, government funding in London to do like large-scale stuff and a good amount of New York artists uh, no, a good amount of American artists have been making work in London so and in Europe like remember the Rocky musical like Germany in Germany but Alex Timbers directed it in Germany first or the recent um, or the Sam Gold a glass menagerie which was which originated in Amsterdam oh no what if it's oh no what if this is all a case of like when are you Scratching yourself from the bug bites. Yes. <laughs> what? It's so I. Uh, it is so bad because you know, because you know how like I sprayed my ankles yeah. and my lower legs, but I didn't spray my thighs, and they got me there. Oh my god. Yeah, it, it, and and it, and it's a horror show. Have you underneath the stress? Have you rubbed that thing that looks like Pepto Bismol on you? Yeah, I, I, I rubbed hydrocortisone. I rubbed Aquaphor. I rubbed so much stuff on myself. Oh no! Yeah, it's just gonna suck until it no longer until sucks. It no longer sucks. So anyway, if, if you're gonna see theater outside, side point, just cover yourself in spray. Yes, but I was saying before that. What if we're seeing a case of like when all the it's like a reverse like 1930s world where all like the artists fled Europe because of Hitler and came to do theater in New York and movies in Hollywood. And what if we're now seeing the opposite where like people are fleeing America because of everything and are just doing their work in Europe? I mean, two or three is not a trend but at the same time, I don't blame them because the Nazis it, are coming. Yeah, because there's not as many Nazis in Europe. That's so insane. And better funding too. Yeah, no Nazis and better funding. Okay, mm. okay, that's ominous. Yeah, yeah. 
But I don't know. I feel like at a certain point, every, every season there's usually like a some a balance of a, a small amount of stuff that came in from abroad, a small amount of stuff that transferred from off off Broadway or regional, and a, a small amount of stuff that opens cold. And so, yeah, you know, like a couple months, we'll like see what the um, what the balance is this year. Well, surprises Broadway. Yeah. So yes. We love a good surprise. Oh, any. Oh, speaking of British imports, you, have you heard anything about what happened? Have you have you heard anything about the company that was supposed to be coming in? Well, the, I mean, the female-led was, company. That was always like a rumor, but they never like confirmed it was actually coming here. Really? Yeah. I mean, they have done so many Sondheims in the West End that never yeah. come to Broadway. Like, basically all of the Imelda Stunton ones. Like, her mm-hmm. Gypsy never came. Mm-hmm. Her Follies, which I saw the uh, National Theater live stream of. Yeah, and it yeah. it was extraordinary. That never moved either. Like, give us Imelda. Please, Broadway, give us Imelda Stunton. Yeah, we're, we're complaining about all the British imports, but give us Imelda. Give us Imelda, yeah. And I mean, I guess if Patty Lupone signs up to uh, to company on Broadway, I'm I don't see why they wouldn't bring it. Yeah. Uh, or at the very least, someone show me a place to get a bootleg. Anybody? Am I crazy? Or did someone at some point say that they were going to bring that transfer with Anne Hathaway as Bobby? I feel like you're crazy because I have not. That's- I, might, I might have read it in some like weird like forum or message board somewhere, but I don't know. That would be something interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wh- why are the London Sondheims so much more inventive than the American Sondheims? Discuss, everybody. <laughs> anyway, uh, if you like the show... Th- oh, bleh. Anyway, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes us feel happy about what we're doing. And if you want to watch the video that we took at Hudson Valley outside and watch me get bit as I'm talking on camera, you can find that on YouTube. Uh, anything else you want to say to the people? Wear bug spray. If you're going to go outside. Or even and, indoors, you never know yeah. what it says. I mean, I would do anything for love. But you won't do that. But I won't not wear bug spray. <laughs> And remember, theater's more fun when you take a friend. Bye.